Hey guys, welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. The NBA is in full swing and we have coverage across all of our channels to keep you up to speed with the latest news, trends, and storylines. Make sure to check out The Mismatch with Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon, Group Chat with Chris Ryan and Justin Barrier, and Heat Check with John Gonzalez for daily coverage of the games across the league. And make sure to check out TheRinger.com to read Kevin O'Connor, Dan Devine, and the rest of our NBA experts break down every development. As always, these can be found on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. David, Fox News had to make an embarrassing correction today after wrongly reporting that Cory Booker had dropped out of the presidential race. What I want to know is which candidate do you think would actually drop out if a major <laughs> news outlet incorrectly reported them dropping out? Oh, wow. Um, like they got, like they were so humble or so humiliated by this, by the notion that they're ov- that they're an obvious candidate to drop out, that they yes. would just be forced to drop out. Like if someone makes, it's like when someone just like insults you so well that you have to just turn around and walk away. <laughs> That's it. You win. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of them should. I don't know if I don't know if all of them would. I mean, Booker Booker's not quite there. Dang, who is it? Who's still running? Who? What's the What's the bottom of the list right now? Yeah, I mean John Delaney. Ca- I mean, is John is, Delaney and, embarrassable enough to? Yeah, I mean, if, if Fox is a little bit, you can make the argument about Fox. If the New York Times ran a piece about like Julian Castro dropping out, he might just have to drop out. I think he's on. He's not in the November debate. He's on the line. Yeah, he might. He might go. I guess. I guess the question is, could you, if you're a Democratic candidate, even right. someone on the bottom of the list? Couldn't you just fundraise the hell out of this? Isn't your first email, the New York Times says our campaign is dead, but let's show them. Help me raise a million dollars by midnight. Yeah, it sounds like a Marianne Williams. <laughs> you kind of have to be at the bottom to make that plea, though, right? If Joe, if Joe Biden was like, the New York Times has her out of it, but we're not, wouldn't you just be like, yeah, I'm going to need to see your financials just to be doubly sure that I'm not just throwing good money after bad <laughs> We are the Wayne Messam Forever of Media Podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. We got lots and lots of stuff to get to today. We'll talk about the renaissance, or the maybe not renaissance, of ESPN opinionator Stephen A. Smith. We'll talk about the take fest that greeted helmet-swinging Cleveland Brown Miles Garrett the other night. We'll revisit the great newspaper scandal involving the so-called Hitler Diaries. Plus, of course, the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, until further notice, I think we need to begin this podcast with the latest on the possible impeachment of Donald Trump. It's not really news at this point to say that Trump tweeted through something. But Friday was still pretty significant because Trump tweeted through his impeachment hearing <laughs> literally and may have committed an additional impeachable offense while doing it <laughs> ousted american ambassador to ukraine marie yovanovich was testifying and trump tweeted everywhere marie yovanovich went turned bad she started off in somalia how did that go then fast forward to ukraine where the new ukrainian president spoke unfavorably about her in my second phone call with him let us listen to Democrat Adam Schiff stop the impeachment hearing to announce this tweet. But would you like to respond to the president's attack that everywhere you went turned bad? Well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have such powers, uh, not in Mogadishu, Somalia, Somalia, not in other places. I actually think that um, where I've served over the years, um, I and others have demonstrably um, made things better, you know, for the U.S. as well as for the countries uh, that I've served in. Uh, Ukraine, for example, where there are huge challenges, including, you know, on the issue that we're discussing today of, of corruption, huge challenges. But they've made a lot of progress since 2014, including in the years that I was there. And I think in part, uh, I mean, the Ukrainian people get the most Um, the most credit for that. But a part of that credit goes to the work of the United States and um, and to me as the ambassador in in the United um, in Ukraine. 
Ambassador, um, you've shown the courage to come forward today and testify. Notwithstanding the fact you were urged by the White House or State Department not to, notwithstanding the fact that, as you testified earlier, the President implicitly threatened you in that call record, and now the President in real time is attacking you, what effect do you think that has on other witnesses' willingness to come forward and expose wrongdoing? Well, uh, it's very intimidating. It's designed to intimidate, is it not? I, I mean, I can't speak to what the president is trying to do, but I think the effect is to be intimidating. Well, I want to let you know, Ambassador, that some of us here take witness intimidation very, very seriously. The New York Times notes, David, that this probably does not fall under basic criminal witness intimidation, but it may fall under a potential impeachment charge of obstruction of justice or obstruction of Congress when paired with previous acts like dangling pardons or asking subordinates to write memos exonerating the president. This one really struck me because I think one of the features of the Trump administration has been him tweeting through literally everything and us watching and saying, wait, is there any downside to just blasting everybody and anybody in your Twitter feed? And I think with this and Roger Stone's <laughs> conviction last week, Roger Stone, another guy who was tweeting through his various problems, it sort of showed the limits of it, that maybe it, it truly isn't a good idea to you know go after everybody who you perceive to be your opponent. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, even if you want to be totally generous to the concept, I think there's a difference between, uh, you know, tweeting through some sort of uh, difficulty or scandal and literally tweeting through it when, you, when you're, when you like, tweeting as events are unfolding and uh, and putting yourself in a real precarious situation or unfavorable situation because you can't stifle yourself long enough to kind of decide what the move is. Um, I mean, honestly, I think that the most... At, at this point, the most, uh, the best defense Trump has is almost just the, I mean, the, the case that actually some Republicans have been making is just like his own ridiculousness sort of makes him impervious to these charges. And, and, and the, and the tweeting during Ivanovich's testimony, I mean, it was just so damning, if not an admission of guilt, just like a very, like he drew, he, he got out the, 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 the chalkboard and drew a diagram about how he is too idiotic to have avoided the pitfalls that he put him, that he put in front of himself. <laughs> it just seems like, I mean, I mean, it's, it's impossible to, to watch that go down and one, not feel incre incredible sympathy for, um, ambassador Ivanovich. Um, I mean, she was incredibly impressive throughout the entire testimony. And, and, and I mean, one of the, through all of these hearings, certainly one of the most compelling figures that, that we've had in front of, in front of the cameras, but it was impossible to not just sort of like laugh at, I mean, almost at the ridiculousness of what Trump was doing to the point where maybe it's, it, it does sort of diminish the depravity of it. You know, I mean, it just was, so, it's just so, just so inane. That's, I mean, it is where actual impeachable acts collide with, as you say, what is emerging as a conservative defense, which is that Trump is too incompetent to commit impeachable acts. And, you know, I feel that for the last couple of years, we've had this national conversation about what happens when you tweet about somebody and turn your followers on somebody. That's just kind of been percolating. This is the presidential impeachment version of that conversation. Trump is turning his bots or whatever they are loose on this former ambassador again not only against all common sense but against what apparently were the republican talking points which was let's not insult this person let's let this let this go let's ask questions all that kind of stuff but let us not assassinate the character of this person including blaming the problems of somalia <laughs> on this single mm -hmm. American Foreign Service officer. 
Well, it's not such thin gruel, too. Like you really like I, I when I when I saw that tweet, the existence of that tweet, I was really expecting like there to be a couple more, uh, you know, international hellscapes that she attended at some point during her career. Instead, it was just like Somalia, and then you, you and you know how that turned out, and then now she's at in Ukraine and what? I mean, there's just like it was <laughs> such a bad, such a, like a half-assed insult. Um, yeah, I mean. It's just like it's. I feel like we say this once a month or something like that. But the, the this is this. We are living a Saturday Night Live sketch. The idea that Donald Trump would have just like come off the top rope with a bad insult in the middle of his, you know, the the impeachment proceedings is just so ridiculous. The good news is that Trump learned his lesson. Haha, <laughs> just kidding. Because on Sunday he tweeted, "Tell Jennifer Williams." whoever that is, to read both transcripts of the presidential calls and see the released, the just released statement from Ukraine. Then she should meet with the other never Trumpers who I don't know and mostly never even heard of and work out a better presidential attack. Jennifer Williams is a Mike Pence aide who is testifying on Tuesday. So we're still at it. Um, Elsewhere in impeachment news, David, I would love to talk to you about he loves your ass. By, by that, I mean David Holmes, an official in the U.S. Embassy in Kiev, or Kiev, if you prefer, submitted private testimony about a July incident at a restaurant. He was at the restaurant with EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, and Sondland called Trump. I'm going to quote to you from David Holmes's testimony. I noticed Ambassador Sondland's demeanor change and understood that he had been connected to President Trump. While Ambassador Sondland's phone was not on speakerphone, I could hear the president's voice through the earpiece of the phone. The president's voice was very loud and recognizable, dot, dot, dot. I heard Ambassador Sondland greet the president and explain he was calling from Kiev. I heard President Trump then clarify that Ambassador Sondland was in Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland replied, yes, he was in Ukraine, and then went on to state that President Zelensky loves your ass. I think he means loves your ass, not loves your ass, but, you know, put your inflection where you want to there. I then heard President Trump ask, so he's going to do the investigation. Ambassador Sondland replied that he's going to do it, adding that President Zelensky will do anything you ask him to. Even though I did not take notes of these statements, I have a clear recollection that these statements were made. Um, Then... After the call ended, and I'm still quoting David Holmes here, Ambassador Sondland remarked that the president was in a bad mood, (laughs) dot, dot, dot. I asked Ambassador Sondland if it was true that the president did not give a shit about Ukraine. Ambassador Sondland agreed that the president did not give a shit about Ukraine, that implying that the president didn't care about actual corruption in Ukraine, but cared about Ukraine making a show of investigating this fake theory about the Bidens and or Ukraine's interference in the 2016 election. So <laughs> that's pretty damning. And how amazing is it, David, just the stagecraft of this, that this was revealed because President Trump talks too loudly yeah. and could be heard through the phone. Not I was sitting around, you know, on an, as a part of an official communique taking notes. But I could hear the president essentially yelling through somebody's cell phone while we're sitting at a cafe in Ukraine. Yeah. What as uh, the press box's resident drama critic do you make of that? <laughs> um, it's just it, it's just so perfect. I mean, like everything else. Is there anything? I mean, it, it's it's like is there, it, there's no one that is that has read that. There's no one that's listening to this podcast. There's no one that has heard the report of this on the nightly news who does not know exactly what Donald Trump looked like as he was yelling into the phone, right? I mean, it's like so easy to imagine. There's not even a question of what it was, what, of what was going on. Um, and sadly, that's just sort of the state of affairs, uh, at least in, maybe more metaphorically, of, of everything that, that this administration seems to have got itself into. As these various plots are laid out in the media, too, there's always a sense of we're not going to find a smoking gun that's as obvious as that. We're yeah. not going to find somebody using language like, do you, hey, is it is it agreed upon that so-and-so is going to do the bad thing? Yes, it's agreed that they're going to do the bad thing. But I feel in, in the Ukraine affair, we keep finding that. And this is just yet another part that is just wild and baffling. Um, elsewhere in Ukraine news, 
a big week for John Solomon. Who's John Solomon? Well, <laughs> he's a journalist who's kind of wears Waldoed his way into the whole thing. He is 52 years old. He worked for the AP and Washington Post and also Newsweek. More on that in a second. Solomon started writing columns for The Hill and, as the Trump whistleblower noted, started publishing stories about Ukraine. They became influential in the White House shenanigans. According to a New York Times story by Jeremy Peters and Kenneth Vogel, in one column, Solomon interviewed a Ukraine's prosecutor general who claimed that Maria Yovanovitch, the now former ambassador, gave him a do not prosecute list. The prosecutor general later admitted there was no list, but Donald Trump Jr. and others amplified the story and Yovanovitch lost her job. According to a ProPublica piece by Jake Pearson, Mike Spies, and J. David McSwain, here I am quoting again, more than a year before his Ukraine columns were published, The Hill had serious concerns about Solomon's credibility and conflicts of interest. Hill staffers began raising alarms, including the paper's publishers at the t- publisher at the time who warned in an internal memo that Solomon was engaged in, quote, reputation-killing stuff by mixing business with journalism. In response, the Hill's management took steps to limit Solomon's reporting, rebranding him as an opinion writer, but did not prevent him from writing his Ukraine series. ProPublica further notes that Solomon was working on the Ukraine series with Lev Parnas. You know Parnas, the now indicted Rudy Giuliani associate who was working mm-hmm. to push the Ukraine story. Solomon defends himself, and I love this, to ProPublica by saying, quote, everybody who approaches me has an angle. My mother has an angle when she calls me. So he's defending working with Lev Parnas, who was pushing the Ukraine conspiracy theory by saying, hey, even when mom calls, she's got an angle. Now, I don't know about you, David, but when my mom calls me, she wants me to get my flu shot. Well, that's an angle, Brian. That, that's an angle. She's worried about my health. Wants to make sure I'm getting enough rest. She's not saying, hey, do you think that it's actually Ukraine rather than Russia that monkeyed with the 2016 election? <laughs> but that's what he's saying here. I got, I got two thoughts on this. One is this kind of shows Trump world's contempt for the press that not only do you take a blaster to the New York Times and Washington Post regularly, but you then are feeding scoops to this guy Solomon in the Hill and mm-hmm. regarding that as legitimate journalism. I believe Trump said that Solomon deserved a Pulitzer Prize at one point. Mm-hmm. So you have such contempt that not only are you sort of, you know, slagging the legitimate journalists, but you are saying that people like this are the legitimate journalists, right? It's almost a replacement thing. And to me, that's almost that's almost as, you know, medieval as as blasting away at the New York Times. What do you think? <laughs> um, dare I say I think that's right? Um, <laughs> I mean, Solomon's such a ridiculous character. I think I mentioned him last week. I mean, he's he's both the sort of source and the jester in so much of this story um i mean if you're interested you know i'm sure i'm not the only one out there that like when big news is breaking we'll we'll toggle the tv over to fox news or hop on conservative twitter to see what the sort of uh sure alternate alternate take is going to be if you want to see what like the what the world is like when viewed through like a hallucinogenic lens you can go to john solomon's twitter feed where he's just like literally posting counterfactuals as as news um i mean he's talking about like in the middle of testimony that was plainly incriminating trump he's talking he's just like saying like he's just reporting the hunter biden news up to the moment um as as of i think yeah just yesterday or or on the sorry on the uh 15th he tweeted the Ivanovich testified she sh- about t- sharing sentiments uh, with other State Department officials that the Biden Burisma relationship was a, a, a created the appearance of a conflict of interest. Like that is clearly he's honing in on that over and over again, um, <laughs> which is just seems. I mean, which is just utterly you know beside the point. Um, as many people have pointed out, if you want to find him now, you can find him on uh, JohnSalmonReports dot com, um, <laughs> not on the Hill. All of his news. It's a uh, you know, I'm sure just a self-run 
blog, and it's it's a blog in the most like old school like WordPress possible uh, connotation. It doesn't even like have the appearance, you know, that like he could at least just gone the route that other wackos have gone and like publish on Medium to give the appearance of legitimacy or something like that. But no, this is <laughs> too wild for Medium. Too, too, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, this, this guy, I mean, what's amazing to me is this guy had quite a run in respectable media. He was at Newsweek when I was there. Like he just, he kind of showed up as this political writer editor person at some point during the first Obama administration. Yeah. And none of us could figure out why he was there and none of us figure out how he got there. Man, what a strange journey this guy's had. And the fact that he's now somehow, I mean, it's, it's utterly perfect that he's in the middle of this because if you had to pick, I don't know, Dave, if you had to pick one journalist from conservative media, other than Sean Hannity, and you know that that would somehow be in the documents and in the impeachment hearings. John Solomon would be my pick without knowing any, without even knowing what the scandal was. I would have picked that. Yeah, just just absolutely weird. All right, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod, where they are always gratefully received. A local crime headline from CNN, David, two Arkansas chemistry professors arrested for allegedly making meth. Two Arkansas chemistry professors arrested for allegedly making meth. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write breaking sad. Thanks to Jump Six, who's been on fire, and JW for that one. A weirdly related headline from Zombie Newsweek, quote, feral hogs find and destroy cocaine worth $22,000 hidden in woods. <laughs> That's kind of a great Mad Libs of uh, clickable subjects there. <laughs> Feral hogs find and destroy cocaine worth $22,000 hidden in woods. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write. So that's where the 30 to 50 feral hogs got off to. Thanks to <laughs> Terry McDonald. I, I saw a couple references to 30 to 50 feral hogs this week. Big week for that one. And finally, David, we're a week out from Thanksgiving. And that means we're about a week out from the traditional presidential pardon of the White House turkey. It was a very overworked Twitter joke to write this year on Thanksgiving. Trump will pardon a turkey only after it gives him dirt on Joe Biden. Thanks to Double Down <laughs> Rob for that one. If you treated the White House turkey like the Ukrainian president or maybe Roger Stone, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. I don't mean to make light of it, but isn't the, isn't the right joke that Trump will only pardon the turkey that committed war crimes? <laughs> oh, <laughs> Send your, send your emails to David Shoemaker. <laughs> Press box listeners. All right, before we get to the notebook dump, let us pause for a quick word from our advertisers. David, I want to talk to you about Oris Watches. Staying true to a rich heritage, Oris is one of the few Swiss watch companies to remain independently owned and operated. Because of this independence, Oris has a freedom to follow its own path. They're focused on bringing change for the better, which means making choices that are ecologically, socially, and financially responsible. That includes ocean conservation and recycled plastic partnerships. Of course, that's along with Oris's century-long and change commitment to making inventive, high-functioning, Swiss-made watches that serve a real purpose and at prices that make sense. The best possible watch for the money. Comprised of four themes, diving, aviation, motorsport, and culture, Oris watches are made for everyday wear. Shop the many different unique styles at oris.ch slash pressbox. You're sure to find one that suits your style and taste. That's oris.ch slash pressbox. All right, David, time for the notebook dump. And on Friday, blackballed NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick was set to take part in a league-sanctioned workout down in Georgia. It quickly went to hell. Kaepernick didn't sign the waiver the NFL gave him, feeling it was way too broad. Kaepernick's team wanted the event to be open to the media as well. Kaepernick wound up working out at a Georgia high school in front of fewer NFL teams than expected. And I want to use that story as a peg, as they say in the business, to talk about Stephen A. Smith. It will surprise no one that the ESPN opinionator had a take on these events. Here's Stephen A. staring into his phone and letting her rip. He don't want to play. He wants to be a martyr. But guess what? It ain't working this time. All of us believe that Colin Kaepernick would have showed out. And if he had showed out, 
I'm here to tell you, I believe he would have had a job inside of two weeks. But it didn't happen because he didn't show. He wanted to show up to a high school in Georgia. Not an NFL facility, a high school. And then YouTube it live. Like the average Joe out there gets to decide if he's on the NFL roster. You don't want to work. You just want to make noise. And you want to control the narrative. It's over. Colin Kaepernick's aspiration in the NFL. For an NFL career. It's over. Talk to y'all Monday on first take. I think what was surprising to me about that, David, was not the content, but the volume of Stephen A. It was like someone was sleeping in the next room. You know, he was doing like hypnotic overnight radio. <laughs> I thought it was like the the Reverend Robert Tilton was like telling, giving me hot sports takes. <laughs> um, somewhat later, Smith got into it with Eric Reed, NFL safety and Kaepernick ally, in a long Twitter exchange, and I mean long. But my favorite part was the final Stephen A. tweet, which read, "Excuse the couple of spelling errors. I was driving before pulling off the road." So. Even driving will not stop the Stephen A. take machine from pushing forward. Uh, I wrote a piece last week that you and I test drove on this pod, David, about how we've entered an era of strange new respect for Stephen A. Smith. Mm -hmm. And I predict that this thing, which would have been like a you know three-day event on Deadspin if Deadspin still existed, won't ultimately matter because we've all decided that Stephen A. is okay. And can you and I, and again, I feel like we've, we've sort of taken a small bite of this subject, but can we just talk about, and I'm going to ask you first, why we think this happened, how we can be here, but then all of, and when I say all of, I mean a large part of like whatever we consider the sports media cognoscenti to be will sort of shake their head, but then embrace Stephen A or at least half embrace him after a take like that? Well, if I must. You must. I mean, I think that the, I think that a lot of the, and we did discuss this, so, and I'm almost certainly going to end up contradicting what I said before, but I think a lot of the respect for Stephen A. Smith has come from a sort of steady realization that he's in on the gag um, and also an appreciation for his, you know, consistency and volume. I, I'm not sure that there is any sort of widespread appreciation for the takes themselves um, or his, you know, politics or, uh, you know, arguments in, you know, consistency of argument or anything like that. I I think that it's the the um, delivery, the performance of said take. Yeah, I think I think I think it's a I think it's a sort of like, you know. It's like a lifetime achievement award to, I mean, like a, like a, a lifetime achievement Oscar to like a Charlie Chaplin or something, you know? I mean, it's just like, well, <laughs> like none of his movies were Oscar worthy, but, <laughs> but the body of work I, made us so happy over the years. Can I stop um, you? I actually thought you were going to say Charlie Sheen, which, yeah, no. <laughs> which I'm not sure would be, wouldn't be a better comparison here, but, but please continue. Well, I mean, Charlie she, Chaplin. No, but I just mean that like, it's a, I mean, I think that we, I'm not sure that it's necessary to bo- to to have a to to have acquired a, a newfound appreciation or you know an appreciation over the years for what Stephen A. Smith does and to defend that take. I don't think that those two things are necessarily married. Um, however, we should be, as with anything else, we should be you know willing and eager to call him out on his terrible takes. You talk about him being in on the joke. Which is a really interesting concept to me. I agree with you. I think, does that happen when he gets sort of translated from TV first take into internet land? Is that when this happens, when he starts doing this stuff on Twitter and starts like tweeting his own memes and like outtakes from his green screen stuff? Is that when we decide he's in on the joke? Because the TV performance is exactly the same as it ever was, I think. Yeah. I think that the, the combination of the selfie, you know, Instagram videos or Twitter videos or whatever, and also just the sort of uh, proliferation of his uh, radio show video and stuff. I mean, I think that, that part of it, uh, I guess what's what's special about the Twitter videos is that 
it's clearly him in a room or him in his closet or whatever filming this thing without the benefit of like producers coaching him on or anything like that. I mean, he's not performing necessarily for a live audience or for a, you know, for the people around him. This is a man who knows who is, you know, who is, has the performance down to an art form. Right. Um, and I think that would be some of the distinction there. There has to be a level of self-awareness that sort of comes with that. And also like he was, he was self-deprecating. I mean, that that run that, that led to us talking about him before was him just sort of like flipping out about the Knicks, uh, what, draft picks or the or their inability to get a free agent, whatever it was, but it was his own fandom that he was sort of knocking and he was really over the top with his reactions in a way that made it clear that he was, he had to understand, he, he, had, he had to understand the bit to be able to sort of like, you know, make fun of the bit. Um, so that's another thing I want to ask you about to see the personal, I think we tolerate this kind of, you know, over the top opinionating when it's about your own team a little bit more. But I think one thing that he's been able to do maybe better than anybody else who does that job is make every team his own team somehow. Like Stephen A has this big thing about the Dallas Cowboys that I've noticed because I'm a mm-hmm. Cowboys fan where he's like wearing cowboy hats and screaming at Michael Irvin, you know, about cowboy stuff. And he's from New York, and so maybe it's like a Giants rivalry thing, but that's funny. I flipped on the radio last week. Part of the reason I wrote that story is, and he was just so wounded that the University of Alabama had lost to LSU. Now, I didn't know Alabama was a personal Stephen A thing like the Knicks, (laughs) but apparently it is. And the tone was exactly the same as him being upset that the Knicks didn't win the lottery. So I think part of the trick is that he's been able to personalize everything and i think when we're watching it you don't we don't you don't necessarily believe that he feels that strongly about every single team in american sports but you're willing to suspend your disbelief enough and and kind of ride with it you know what i'm talking about like you're watching a movie and you see a special effect and you're like i know this isn't right but i'm it's so it's so done so skillfully that i'm willing to kind of forget that it's not real and go with it Something like sure. that, anyway. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I think that he's a, he, he's a, you, you got that. Short you there. Think that yeah, he, there you go. Go ahead. I, I had more distaste for this Kaepernick take because it felt sort of like a, I don't know, Mister Wolf coming in to clean up. Like he was just like like he like he was just sort of trying to just like sweep whatever takes he had prior on the situation under the rug for the sake of just sort of cl- like tying a bow on this one. Um, but. And I don't think defending it, I think he looked terrible before defending it. I don't know really what he can do because it's like pro wrestling. You know, part of the shtick is that you have to insist that it's real. You know, you have to continue insisting that all your takes are real or else the whole facade sort of shatters. Um, mm-hmm. But but I, but I think that that we will forever look at Steve, Stephen A. Smith and his and his ilk. <laughs> Anyone, you know, that's working this sort of routine is going to is going to always look badly when they have a bad take and then defend it have to be or put in the position of having defended on Twitter or anywhere else because that's not what the you know what the gig is about right it's just about it's about expressing the take the defense is really just a totally different thing I was talking to one person from ESPN world over the weekend and he was recounting about when the network decided actually not to re-sign Stephen A back in 2009 this has now kind of all been forgotten but he had that show quite frankly uh, around 2005, it did not, it was canceled. And then he, ESPN actually, you know, sort of bid him goodbye in 2009. And then they bring him back two years later. He winds up on first take. And now he's the most, the biggest star at the network. But this guy was telling me that he said, you know, we all like Stephen A back in the, in the aughts, but we thought here's a guy who's really talented, but you can only put him on TV for two minutes at a time because that's all the audience will tolerate. And what ESPN figured out somewhat later was that we can put him on TV all the time. Not only do you have your two hours of first take, but he's using get up as the first take green room. He's like kind of rehearsing, you know, running the take on there with Mike Greenberg before he goes out to first take. And then he's on sports center later and he has hours and hours of a national radio show on ESPN. And apparently more things now that they've signed him to an $8 million a year contract. So that that's kind of been the surprise that it's not less Stephen A that the audience wanted. It's more Stephen A. And as soon as ESPN unlocked that or figured that out, 
you know, again, he was on the way to becoming the guy at ESPN, which I'm not sure anybody really saw coming 10 years ago. I think that part of it is that he's, I mean, I think that, e, the, you know, the mysterious ESPN uh, source that was quoted there was half right. I mean, you can kind of, you still can only have two minutes of Stephen A. Smith or you can't have more than two minutes of Stephen A. Smith, but you can string those two minute blocks back to back together all day long, right? I mean, you don't want, no one's interested in minute four of a Stephen A. Smith take, you know? No one's probably interested in most of minute two of a Stephen A. Smith take. But that first minute, that first minute and a half uh, can be enough to like, you know, just get, set you reeling for the day. And that's, that's sort of what you want. Great pun headline from Ray Villa about Colin Kaepernick changing the venue of his workout. Colin Unaudible. Oh, wow. Colin Unaudible. Wish I thought of that. Speaking of sports takes, David, segue. Last Thursday night at the end of the Brown Steelers game, Cleveland defensive end Miles Garrett and Pittsburgh quarterback Mason Rudolph got into a fight. It should be noted this was a 21-7 game with eight seconds left. Always a good time for a fight. After Garrett took Rudolph down after the ball was out of his hands, Rudolph started to tussle with Garrett. Rudolph tried to pull off Garrett's helmet unsuccessfully, and then Garrett pulled off Rudolph's helmet and hit him in the head with it. Let us revisit that classic audio. Here's a flag as... Whoa! Whoa! Mason Rudolph got into it. Get out of there. What in the world? Believe Miles Garrett... They're swinging a helmet? Yeah, there'll be some ejections coming out of this. There may be suspensions. That's right, suspensions. Joe and Troy had their coats on and their their briefcases packed up. All of a sudden, I was like, whoa, you got some more content here. Uh, Garrett would be given an indefinite suspension that will last at least as long as the 2019-20 season plays out and postseason. He's going to appeal the suspension on Wednesday, which is fair enough. But David, media members, many prominent media members, clutched their pearls on Thursday night as dramatically as humanly possible. Uh, Let me give you a sampling. Here's Adam Schefter of ESPN. He tweeted, assault, period. Uh, He tweeted 10 minutes later calling Garrett's actions unthinkable and unimaginable. Here is... Stephen A., the aforementioned, go to Miles Garrett's page and you'll see the headline, a hero is made by the path he chooses, not by the power he is graced with. Yet he goes and did what he did to Mason Rudolph. This calls for an automatic season-ending suspension. He should be done, all caps, for the rest of the year. Skip Bayless, Stephen A.'s former partner. Miles Garrett should get a long suspension for that. Dot, dot, dot. Never seen anything like it. So low. Booger McFarlane of Monday Night Football. Miles Garrett violated code amongst the fraternity we compete against one another until the edge of destruction within the rules afterwards we take our helmets off shake hands and wish each other well we never intentionally try to hurt each other he committed a crime and should be charged and this from dan orlovsky uh who has a whole numbered list here very thankful rudolph is okay miles garrett should not play in the nfl for the rest of the season and that's the minimum all caps don't embarrass the shield number three he should have criminal charges pressed on him and number four, the Haslam family, that is the owners of the Browns, should take it upon themselves before Goodell does. Do we? Ooh, yeah. Do I? I guess. I guess I'm less. I'm less shocked by Take Fest 2019 than sort of investigating. Why? Why do we need to go all in like 10 seconds after something like that happens? For the first time ever, I mean, the NFL acted swiftly and seemingly correctly, right? So this is like, so I mean, I, I I guess you can give you can you can be forgiven if you think that you should get your takes in because uh, the NFL wasn't going to do anything <laughs> about it for two weeks or three weeks or something. But, um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't. I this. I, I don't think there's really any way to easily cover this subject without feeling like you know, old man yells at clouds over here. I mean, it's just like, but the, I mean, the answer is really sometimes like you can hold two thoughts in your head at one time. Like this can be a bad thing and it can also be sort of inherent. I mean, like directly, uh, I mean, an AB connection to the sport that we're watching and uh, no one needs to go to jail over it. I mean, it's just, it seems so, 
Yeah, this, can I get a takeoff here? Yeah, Chris, you uh, just say. <laughs> I, this, I feel like, was one of, like, the least troubling things you'll see in an NFL game. <laughs> um, you know, like, this injury and this, like, display of violence was, like, clearly outside the rules and prompted a swift suspension and everyone knew it was bad, as opposed to all of the other violence that is within the rules and we have to think a long time about whether it's bad or not. Most of the time we don't even concede that it's bad you know a, a player got hit and was bleeding out of his ear earlier in the game um and there were no takes about that so here i don't know is maybe the least dangerous thing about it the fact that it was outside of the rules and so we knew it was bad yeah i, I think that's right i think that's right to quote david shoemaker and i think it's one of those things where why is this the line right where you object to football why is this the line i think that's a really interesting question right because when you see people get worked up like that, why is this the moment that is? is well, it- I think because it's outside the room. I mean, I think you're, you're, you you answered the question. I don't think it doesn't take much. It doesn't take that you know many mental gymnastics to say like to you know you can. It's easy to you can laugh right at anyone who says we you know we don't play with the intent intent of hurting each other. I mean, that's like that's like saying like me and my brother were out in the backyard, like no. swinging nail studded two by fours at each other. But we weren't trying to hurt each other. We no, were just playing around. I think they would say they, they play to hurt each other. They just play to hurt each other within the rules of football. I mean, this is like the Bounty Gate thing, right? The thing that was shocking about Bounty Gate wasn't what was happening on the field. It was that like you could prove what was in their hearts while they were doing it, that it was malicious. Yeah. I mean, they 100%. Yeah, but that's what makes it, that's what I'm saying. That's what makes it easy. And I think that when you, that the reason why all these takes are coming out is because a lot of these, a lot of these voices are, probably take a lot of shit from assholes on Twitter all the time for defending players. And this is like the, this is the. High horse you can. This is up. the jur- yeah. This is the sports journalism wild wide sister sister soldier moment where they can like come down on a player for being a criminal and not have to feel like they're betraying anybody to do it. Yeah, I think I think I think that's that's it. I also just wonder: Do people, when you're in on this after like ten seconds, how much of that is I have something I have got to get off my chest? I have an opinion <laughs> that I just need to let people know, or there is just. There's a lot of, you know, bounty of likes and retweets to be had in this 10 second well, yeah. period. I mean, I was I'm always I'm always interested in the combination. We can probably agree it's both, but I'm always interested in the in in the sort of how much is one and how much is the other. And I guess it varies from person to person. But I just I'm always like, yeah, well, okay, that was wild. <laughs> Back to whatever else I was doing. We'll see what happens. And by the way, calling on Roger Goodell to do something about this is is not a take. Of course, something needs to be done about this. That's not that even basically doesn't even qualify. Of course, something is going to happen. When somebody hit somebody with a helmet. That's not. It's not really. You know. Anyway, we'll uh, till till next week's sports take fest which we won't cover at all here at TheRinger.com. David, can I change the subject and talk to you about the Hitler Diaries? <laughs> talk about a segue. <laughs> what the hell? Segway. Sure, sure. I'm excited to see what this is about. I bring them up because last month marked the death of Frank Giles, former editor of the London Sunday Times, which is a paper that in 1983 published diaries the paper said were written by Adolf Hitler. There is a whole story now about how Hitler during World War II allegedly put important documents on a plane and sent them out of Berlin as the Russians and allies were closing in on his bunker. Anyway, a German fraudster manufactured his diaries <laughs> and in cahoots with somebody else sold the publication rights to the magazine Der Stern. Now, you could imagine, David, in 1983, we're not talking about a couple years after the end of World War II. We're talking about 1983. This was going to be a huge scoop. Hitler's diary in his own hand. And into that deal came Rupert Murdoch's Sunday Times, which bought the serial rights. I'm quoting now from a very good Giles obituary written by New York Times writer Catherine Seely. Uh, Some at the Sunday Times were skeptical and urged further investigation. They remembered when the Sunday Times had almost been taken in years before by fake diaries purported to have been written by Mussolini. Can I stop right there and say that 
how many fake dictator diaries were washing around Europe in the 70s and 80s. They were fake Mussolini diaries and fake Hitler diaries. Amazing. Quoting again from the Times, but Mr. Giles put his faith in Hugh Trevor Roper, who is a British historian, and according to another editor, once Trevor Roper gave his seal of approval, Murdoch ordered the diaries published without any further inquiry. The world was bracing for blockbuster revelations. Newsweek magazine, which bought the American rights, boasted in advance advertisements, these controversial papers could rewrite the history of the Third Reich from Hitler's rise to power to his suicide in the ruins of Berlin. On Saturday, April 24th, 1983, the presses at the Sunday Times began to roll. Unknown to the newspaper's editors, Hugh Trevor Roper had started to doubt the diary's validity. Okay, so just to pause here again. The historian the Sunday Times had relied on to authenticate the diaries now doubted them as the presses are running and they're about to publish this. This has got to be one of the great scenes in newspaper history, which I'm about to tell you, again, quoting from the Times. That night meaning April 24th, 1983, Frank Giles, editor of the Sunday Times, was in his office with other senior editors celebrating their scoop. They called Trevor Roper, the historian, to share their joy. What ensued was a heart-stopping telephone conversation between Giles and Trevor Roper. According to others in the room, Giles' side, that's the editor's side of the conversation, went like this. Well, naturally, Hugh, one has doubts. There are no certainties in this life. But these doubts aren't strong enough to make you do a complete 180-degree turn on that. Pause. Then Giles says, oh, I see. You are doing a 180-degree turn. The editors called Rupert Murdoch with the dire news, but he was said to have dismissed Trevor Roper's concerns with a vulgarity and ordered the publication to proceed. The entries Seeley writes were riddled with factual errors, and some did not exactly sound like they actually came from Adolf Hitler. One diary entry read, that Goebbels, what a pain in the neck. That isn't. That was actually a <laughs> quote from the fake diaries. Frank Giles, editor of the Sunday Times, was sacked with Murdoch demoting him to editor emeritus. Rupert Murdoch later said, I take full responsibility for it. It was a major mistake and one I shall have to live with for the rest of my life. So this was like Stephen Glass 1983, David. Except even more widespread and even more... Ludicrous. The Diary of Adolf Hitler, published in a major and respected British publication, later shown to be BS. Pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. All right. I feel like I missed my calling. I think I'd be really good at fake at sniffing diaries. out fake diaries. No, not sniffing out, just writing them. Oh. As a as a <laughs> you'd like to get into the business of uh of important or forged historical documents. Yes. I think, I think I, I, that, that nothing would make me happier. All right. Well, let's talk after the podcast. We'll see what we can do. All right. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Here's where David sighs. <sighs> Tuesday's headline about the removal of Munch's make believe ban from Chuck E. Cheese restaurants was Good Night Squeak Prince. As usual, our listeners are even funnier. Listener Chad thinks the headline should have been Gouda Night, Sweet Prince. <laughs> Jeff Hoffman says, Who moved my cheese? Brian Mayer has the headline, The Cheese Stands Alone. Yeah. S Steve Capana says, Rest in Pizza. This is pretty good. But I think our winner is Marissa, who thinks the headline should have been Good Night and Good Chuck. <laughs> Oh, wow. Good night and good chuck. Today's pun headline, David, comes from the story I just read to you about the Hitler diaries. Frank Giles. That, just, that, story, that, that segment seemed to end rather abruptly. I'm glad uh, that it was going it somewhere. <laughs> it did. Frank Giles, the deceased former editor of the London Sunday Times, wrote his memoirs, as British newspaper editors are wont to do, and his memoir had a pun title, Okay. Giles was punning on, this has nothing to do with Hitler or the diary. Giles was punning on Sunday Times. Sunday Times. What was the strained pun title of Frank Giles' memoir? Uh, Sunday. Is, it, is him looking back? Is this all he did was work for the Times? I mean, not all well, he that long, he did. But a that... long career as a writer and journalist. Um... Is it just a time like the times they are a changing the uh, time times mm. of our lives? 
Uh, Ooh, buddy, buddy, it's more strain than that. Uh, uh, what if the, I told you was, that Frank, the, Frank Giles was looking back at various times in his life, miscellaneous times in his life? The best of times, the worst of times? Uh, mm, various times, miscellaneous times. All sorts of times. Um, get out your, get out your uh, SAT word thesaurus here. Miscellaneous. Various. Ver- uh, um, not Sunday, but. Sundry times? Sundry times. <laughs> His memoir was called Sundry Times. Oh my gosh. I don't think if I, if I saw that in a store, <laughs> I don't think I would even catch the pun. Maybe the Sunday times aren't as big of a deal here. I don't know. Is that the drollest thing you've ever heard? I feel like you have texted me. You've texted me photos of like British memoirs before that fitted that that were even more droll than that. But that is that is quite a category. It's just like droll British memoir titles. We had the Kingsley Amos biography called Lucky Him (laughs) on this podcast before, but I think Sundry Times may be the drollest British pun oh, we've it's good stuff. ever had. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Chris Almeida. Production Magic by Jim Cunningham. We are back Wednesday night because there's a Democratic debate with more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. David? Hello? My mother loves your ass. <laughs> oh, wow. What as uh, the press box's resident drama critic do you make of that? Now she's at, in Ukraine and what? Wearing cowboy hats and screaming at Michael Irvin as dramatically as humanly possible. I was really expecting like there to be a couple more, uh, you know, international hellscapes that she loves your ass not loves your ass but you know um i feel like i missed my calling i think it'd be really good Uh just kidding perfect my mother did not give a shit about you david yeah so when my mom calls me she wants me to get my cocaine worth twenty two thousand dollars hidden in woods really why do we need to go all in like 10 seconds after something like that happens I think I, I, that, that nothing would make me happier maybe it it truly isn't a good idea I mean, there's just like, it was such a bad, such a like a half So that's another thing I want to ask you about to see. Is that the drollest thing you've ever heard? Well, yeah. Man, what a strange journey this guy's had. <laughs> um, dare I say I think that's right? If I must. You must.